Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Avi Kravitz. Welcome to another episode of the Rapport Diamond podcast. After some time, I finally had the chance to catch up with members of our editorial team, our news editor, Joshua Friedman, and Rachel Taylor, who is our acting editor-in-chief, while Sonia is away for the next few months on maternity leave. We cover a wide range of topics on this episode, from Signet's acquisition of Blue Nile to how the independents are relating to the big brands, the India IIJS show and Tiffany's move into NFTs. There's enough here to whet everyone's appetite. So please enjoy my conversation with Joshua and Rachel. Hi, Joshua and hi, Rachel. It's great to have you guys. Um, It's been a while since we've done a team podcast. Before we get to Rachel, I want to just um, say hello to Joshua and, and welcome back to the podcast, Joshua. It's great to see you. I hope you're having a good summer. Thank you. Great to be here. And Rachel, uh, making your debut on the Rathbore Diamond podcast, it's so it's so great to have you. Yeah, my my very first one. This is really exciting, actually, <laughs> for me. Rachel is going to be working with Rathbore for the next um, six months or so, while while Sonia is on maternity leave. Um, so slightly intimidating, but I'm just going to do my best to kind of keep it all afloat until she gets back. <laughs> Firstly, welcome to the team. It's um, it's exciting to have you. Um, it's big shoes to fill, as we all know. I have complete confidence in you. Um, maybe, Rachel, if you could tell us a bit about um, your background. We know you as as um, sort of a, as a jewelry connoisseur, um, so to speak, in the in the industry. I think your name is uh, your name precedes you. And so, um, tell us a bit about how you got into the industry. What your main sort of function and and interaction with the jewelry trade is. So I sort of stumbled into the industry by chance, really. Um, I was working at a time for a magazine called Retail Week, which is a business magazine focused generally on retail. Um, But within the same publishing group, there was another magazine called Retail Jeweler, which is based in the UK where I am. Um, And I just sort of applied for the job, really looking for that next step and a new challenge. Didn't know anything about the industry. But as soon as I started to sort of dip my toe in, I absolutely loved it. I spent a lot of time meeting different people, kind of learning about different elements of the trade. And everyone was just really generous with their time, I think, to a newcomer. And I really enjoyed that. Um, Unfortunately, perhaps about a year in, I was made redundant. It was kind of that time just sort of as the recession was starting to bite when there were big calls across publishing groups. Um, So I was really quite um, disappointed by that because I really kind of, I don't know, I felt like I was just kind of getting into the industry. But I was very lucky that a a publisher called ITP approached me and asked if I'd like to start a rival magazine, which, of course, I was going to say yes to that. So that was a real sort of adventure, actually, kind of starting a magazine from scratch. And that was Professional Jeweler, which is still published today um, and one of sort of the biggest magazines, I would say, with Retail Jeweler in the UK. Um, And then I went on to launch a watch magazine for them called Watch Pro. So again, aimed at a business. So I stayed with ISP for maybe about five years and we sort of launched lots of interesting projects within those magazine groups and sort of really built them up to be quite important publications for the UK market. Um, but then when I had my second child, I decided to go freelance to see if I could get a bit more flexibility. And so since then, I've just been um, writing for lots of different newspapers and magazines including Rapcore, which I've written for since 2017, I think. Um, so always sort of specializing in jewelry and occasionally watches. Um, yeah, and another another sort of project that I did for about four years, which people might know, was the Jewelry Cup, which was a show in London. 
which brought in contemporary jewelry designers um, to create a consumer show, which also had quite a big trade following as well. Um, so yeah, that's kind of me and my journey in a bit of a nutshell. What, what always interests me is people come to the industry from different backgrounds, but it bites, the industry bites and, and, and kind of holds on to a certain personality. And those publications that you started, certainly um, Professional Jeweler, um, is uh, certainly on our radar. We're aware of it and sort of a go-to if we if we want to understand what's happening in the UK market. But admittedly, UK market is not uh, sort of predominant in our news feed, let's say. And uh, it's quite quite small compared to the US. <laughs> it always surprises me, and maybe Joshua, you know, coming from London yourself, it's such a fashion hub that it always kind of surprises me that it doesn't play more of a role in um, jewelry trends and design. Yeah, I uh, I would probably agree with that, and I think now its main role is probably as a, or at least one of its main roles is as a uh, a, a tourist retail um, location. Although that's maybe been less the case in the last couple of years. I mean, Joshua, you uh, you know, having grown up in in London, I think also yours and my focus is more um, on the analysis and and uh, tradey side of things. But uh, the the London exchange and, and the presence of De Beers had always um, sort of felt like London was punching below its weights a bit, um, given those uh, centres of activity that were directing the, the diamond industry. I completely agree with that. That was one of the reasons I started the jewellery cut really was to kind of bring a bit of, we sort of originally linked it with London Fashion Week because there wasn't, as you say, it's a real hub for talent. You know, lots of people want to study jewellery design there. It's got some great schools, but then it kind of seems to sort of stumble a little bit after that point, but really it should be, I don't know, in my opinion, more of a more of a hub. Yeah, I think the tourist who's interested, the luxury tourist that's interested, is certainly going to those um, high end jewelers and jewelry areas. But Rachel, in our discussions, you you've noted um, some some interesting trends in the branded jewelry space and among independents, and it seems that there has been a bit of a shift and a change in the dynamic in in the UK jewelry scene and retail scene um, over the last few years, maybe through COVID. What is it that's, um, that sort of caught your eye in that, in that respect? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely sort of what Joshua said about being a tourist centre, that was definitely the case for a long time, although COVID has kind of <laughs> put a little bit of pressure on stores that do rely on that. Um, but I think what's what's been interesting to see in the UK market over the past few years is really kind of almost jewellers coming full circle really to back to traditional values so I think at the high and I'm I'm sure listeners in the US will probably remember this as well but there was a big surge in silver jewelry that was branded so Pandora, Swarovski, Thomas Sabo these sorts of brands and it was really became a fashionable thing for independent jewelers to give over large sections of their store to these brands to open dedicated stores to really invest in that and that was really hot for a while and everybody was doing great business but as these brands kind of gained in power, they've started to shrink their wholesale outlets and sort of take back that control from the retailers. And I think the smart retailers have suddenly realized that it's quite dangerous to have that much you know, percentage of your turnover reliant on brands who at any moment can kind of take that away from you. So what a lot of them have done is kind of flipped completely the other way as these kind of accounts have disappeared. And what they've started doing is looking at their businesses and wondering how can we be of value to our customers? What makes us different? 
And actually what that's bringing them back to is those really traditional values of being almost a family jeweler who specializes in bespoke missions or they're using unbranded jewelry, but branding it as their own. They are trying to become the brand now rather than relying on other brands. I think it's very interesting. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's, if the same trend is happening in the US. And, and Joshua, maybe you, you can comment on this because we are seeing a fair bit of um, consolidation in the United States, um, or at least from my um, from our viewpoint, it seems that those bigger brands, those bigger retail outlets like um, Signet, um, even you know Brilliant Earth, we, we're hearing much more about today, are gaining market share and using their resources to make those acquisitions and, and gain gain market share in that in that respect, maybe to the detriment of the independent jeweler. And obviously the Signet acquisition of Blue Nile comes to mind. What what, what did you make, um, Joshua, of that acquisition and that general trend of Signet gaining so much market share? So so one thing is on the the from the perspective of independent jewelers. I think there's maybe some uncertainty at the moment about what it will mean for them. Um, on the one hand, it's potentially a, a a positive thing because there's less, you could say, less competition. There's there's one one fewer, you know, one one fewer company, one fewer entity uh, competing. Um, but on the other hand, it's uh, you know if you. I mean, the, the obvious negative impact would be on the supplier side, where having one fewer buyer is is bad news. Um, so I think I think the trade is still assessing what it will mean. Um, but uh, Avi, what do you think? I mean, my initial reaction to that announcement was that, and admittedly, I was I was in India and I was hanging out with a lot of manufacturers and dealers who would have worked with both Signet and Blue Nile, and so my my gut reaction in the atmosphere about was that um, this this would be a negative for suppliers because this was a, a combining of Blue Nile, which has traditionally been a, a large, the large specialty e-tailer in the jewelry industry, and James Allen, which is already under the Signet um, banner, and also a leading um, online jeweler. And so bringing those together, suppliers would sell goods through those channels. It was a it was a platform for them to display their goods and sell almost on like a, I wouldn't call it a memo arrangement, but they could upload their goods onto both platforms and the consumer would, would make the order. And so it was an outlet for both of them. So combining those, I think there's a lot of uncertainty as to how that's going to, going to play out for the midstream in cutting out that uh, platform. Um, you know, and it's still it's still not clear how um, Blue Nile and is going to operate within the Signet um, structure. I mean, I was going to ask this when you were in India, you were speaking to suppliers. I mean, was the concern that it's more I don't know that they were going to be buying less, that they were going to be under more pressure to deliver certain price points, or kind of what what were the concerns that people were bringing to you? Well, the, the concern was that they there would be one less platform, one less major platform for them to sell their goods. And they brought the example of when James Allen came into the Signet portfolio, that um, it again sort of they were selling to Signet and its different banners, and it was and selling separately to James Allen. And then for them, 
you know, one plus one, one plus one didn't equal two. It was it was less than two, um, because there was more efficiency coming into, and there is more efficiency coming into Sigma. Their concerns maybe are overblown a bit, and, and you know, it's always. Uh, yeah, I do wonder if it's going to make a difference in terms of you know the consumer on the street perhaps doesn't know all this is happening. So are they going to change their buying habits? You know, is the number of sales going to go down, or you know, I don't know if it would affect that. Right. I don't, I don't think it's uh, from a consumer point of view, I don't think it makes a difference at all. It's all within, it's a trade concern. I think the point that Joshua brings up about the independent jewelers in America and how they view signets um, was an interesting point, Josh. I didn't think about it, that they see it as one less competitor. And um, Blue Nile was always the, how do we put this, like almost like an evil presence that consumers would, <laughs> consumers would um, do their research and come across Blue Nile and Blue Nile's pricing, print it out and go into the store and make that price comparison. And it was an unfair comparison. So I think maybe they will be relieved as to um, that streamlining within the, within the market. Keep all the evil in one place. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, th- I think um, as we see, um, Joshua, with the, with the JB, the, the Jewelers Board of Trade numbers, there is a sense that the, the industry is on, this, on a shrinking path due to consolidation rather than bankruptcy. Um, and these mergers, I think, would, um, would contribute to that. And the other, the other kind of interesting story here is the kind of the, the Blue Nile hasn't really performed as well as its owners would have hoped in the last few years, and and you know, they bought it. We've seen it; they've 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 sold it for a significant discount. Um, they were planning to um, to to merge with another. Basically, they were planning to to Blue Nile was planning to uh, list on the stock exchange um, through a merger with another company, and. Um, that proposed deal valued it at almost nine hundred million dollars, but the sale that was for only three hundred and sixty million. Um, so it seems like Sigma have got uh, uh, got Blue Nile cheap, and uh, one of the things that we're hearing from people is that Blue Nile, the, the, you know, the, the 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 entities that bought Blue Nile a few years ago, uh, chiefly uh, Bain Capital, uh, they um, they haven't really got out of it what they wanted, and um, they just, you know, Signet came along with this uh, attractive cash offer, um, and they took it despite it being quite a significant discount. Joshua, what's what's the benefit for Signet? Is it just kind of knocking out a competitor, or do they see real value in the business? There's a few things. I think firstly, Signet wants to. It has stated its intentions to grow, um, and it wants to reach. Hasn't given a specific date, but it wants to reach nine billion of annual revenues. And obviously, the quickest way to do that is to acquire other companies. Also, it's it just any uh, e-commerce capabilities is a good thing for for Signet. You know, a few years ago, it was really struggling because it didn't have this, and and you know, since then, it's bought it's it's you know, it's, it's bought James Allen, and it's really uh, kind of strengthened its its e-commerce capabilities. You know, the other, the other thing is that is is it really is, is Signet really there, there's a company, but there's also the technology behind it. Uh, which Sigma's buying by doing this. Um, so this, it, it does add quite a few extra things that Sigma might not have had, had before. Yeah, I, 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 
that $9 billion revenue always comes to mind. And, and there was a sense that, particularly in, in 2021, which was a great year for the whole trade, that they could reach that in, a, in an organic way. But uh, this is much easier, I think. And, and I think your point about, um, about doubling down on e-commerce, it's an interesting question that because the, the e-commerce sort of fad that we saw it during COVID, obviously, you know, the momentum has slowed. And I think people are actually very excited to go out and shop. And I think this, this holiday season will see uh, good traffic because people miss that that in-store experience and they want to have that in-store experience. So it's, it's not just a question of e-commerce, but it's a combination, the ability to combine the, the e-commerce and in-store experience that I think maybe Blue Nile can um, empower or, or embolden um, Signet to, to um, present. Um, do, do you agree with that notion, Rachel, about, uh, about the holiday season? Is that something you're seeing in, in London? I think so. I think people do love to kind of, I think we've all realized that we can live without it, but do we actually want to? I think it's it's really lovely to get out there and beat events. I know lots of retailers here are starting to kind of start doing dinners and start doing those kind of big event, bigger events that they've missed out on doing the past few years. Um, and at the end of the day, they deliver financially. You know, they tend to have big sales bumps from doing these sort of kind of whining and dining scenarios so it's kind of beneficial for the retailers but also i think yeah we are going to see people out shopping especially jewelry it's so tactile isn't it people want to touch it and feel it and try it on so yeah and have that experience of being out of the house (laughs) right and uh i I do get the sense and having been in india um india was was a bit of an eye-opener for me because it was a very very much about the domestic market while i was there i went to the iijs um premiere show in uh, early August, and that is an opportunity for local jewelers to to buy goods and inventory for the Diwali season, which is coming up. And there was a very surprising, optimistic outlook for for India. I was I was quite pleased. I was pleasantly surprised. And the way Rachel, you described um, independent jewelers in the UK and um, shifting back to their traditional values, I think that's the core of the. Indian market is that independent family jeweler. Um, although there is, uh, there are there are the brands that are are making headway, but but at the end of the day, you know, every family has their has their jeweler, and it's um it's that sort of mark, you know. So it's uh, it it felt very optimistic, and and that surprised me. So um, and is it a show that you've been to before, Abby? Yeah, I've, I've been I've been to IAJS in the past. I haven't been in the last three years before COVID. But um, and and this was the first time they they held it, um, in in Mumbai since uh, since uh, in the last two or three years, and so there was also that aspect of everyone wanting to you know happy to be together. But there was a good crowd, and again there was just you know I would I would because because our interest is to gauge supply to the U.S. market ahead of that holiday season. I would press them on you know how's the market. Um, supply. I would press manufacturers, and um, and they they were not, the, the, my sense was that they weren't too concerned about um, an economic, the economic slowdown in the United States. They were um, concerned about China, but they were very positive about India. And um, for them, that's the holi- that's the holiday. You know, it, um, it, that's the immediate need. Um, and the Indian market is one that is um, is certainly growing. 
So the hope is that that optimism in India will translate to to other markets, to the US in particular, and the UK and Europe also. Um, there is a feeling that the pessimism about the economy in the United States is um, diminishing a bit, and people are, are fe- that it will settle. And that was certainly the, the feeling amongst the Indian manufacturing community. But then we've got to look at the big brands as well and, and see what they're doing. And there seems to be a lot of um, promotion and thinking out of the box, I think, among the, the bigger brands lately. I know, Rachel, that Tiffany's been very active in, in the UK, um, celebrating 150 years, I think, in the market there. Tiffany is celebrating like 100. They've got a milestone in London at the moment, like for how long they've been in London, if that's a nice little segue. Um, yeah, because they've just done a big exhibition in London. Um, and it's all to do with, let me see if I can find it, how many years they've been there. Um Oh yeah, so it's this, they've done um, this vision and virtuosity exhibition in London, which is to celebrate 150 years in London of Tiffany. Well, they, they might be a French brand um, today. Because <laughs> <laughs> so I went the exhibition, it was at the top of my mind. Given, given, <laughs> given their ownership. Yeah, it's on um, my brain and, at the moment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they've just done, actually it's going to finish in a couple of days, but um, they've just done a huge exhibition at the Saatchi Gallery in London uh, called Vision and Virtuosity, which kind of celebrates the history of the brand, but it was coinciding the fact that they've been in London for 150 years, which I think maybe, I think because they're, you know, kind of perceived as an American, well, I mean, they are an American brand, but it might be quite surprising to people to know that they've been in London for that long. <laughs> well, well, there was there was always the, the question before the, um, before the acquisition by LVMH, if it would lose that American sort of... Uh, um, feel about it, but uh, I, I don't think it has. But there's definitely been a change in in its um, in its language and its tone. I think, and and they're doing very different things. Um, uh, Joshua, they they just um, released an NFT, which is a, which in a very different way. Yeah, it was interesting. So the, what they did was they so they 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 took a a, a popular kind of collection of NFTs, and um, maybe popular is not the right word, but very kind of sought after called um crypto punks which are they're basically very very valuable nfts that people have been buying for insane amounts you know mil- millions of dollars at auctions and things uh, and they basically redesigned them as jewelry um and they enable enable people who owned only if you owned the nft in you know, saying real life it's not really real life you can then get a tiffany designed pendant or you know, nexus uh with that so this these particular nfts are these kind of pixelated images of different characters wearing you know, they're, they're all they're all unique in some sort of way they want some of them have got a baseball cap and some of them have got a pipe or whatever it is you know some of them are so unique i said they've sold for like 25, 25 million dollars um and so if you own it then you can get this this tiffany designed necklace and you get with it some sort of tiffany nft as well i think it's it's it sounds like it's sort of it's um tapping into the hype around these these cryptopunk nfts and also appealing to these very wealthy people that have enough money that they can spend 25 million dollars um on something that doesn't exist digital property like this um so i think right. it's very interesting and it's presented in the it's presented in the tiffany blue box right right so they get all the tiffany experience so this is really you're right so so it's 
it's, it's really a very interesting example of how Tiffany has has kind of taken an online thing and made it into a sort of physical online thing, which is when we've been talking before about NFTs, I think we've, we've mainly been a bit unsure what direction they're going to go in, but this is a kind of interesting indication of where it could go is this kind of this hybrid sort of, yeah, on online, offline product. Um, uh, and it also just reflects what Tiffany have been doing since they were taken over by LVMH. Uh, it's just over a year ago now. Um, they have been surprisingly adventurous in their strategy. You know, this, there's, there, there was that uh, April Fool's joke where they uh, where they published a picture of a yellow uh, a, uh, a a yellow Tiffany, you know, a, a blue box reimagined in yellow. Um, and they've done a few interesting things. Uh, and but at the same time, their their sales results have been very strong. They 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 no longer have to publish their detailed results for the particular brand because they're now owned by LVMH, which just publishes as a group. I think maybe you've mentioned this before, Abby, that maybe that's given them a bit of freedom to kind of go and do their own thing without having the, the spotlight on them the whole time. Um, so um, I, I don't know if it's surprising that they, they are they're taking risk um, because I think the LVMH brand is generally quite um, open to taking such risk. Um, uh, Rachel, what do you think, Rachel? Are they buying, are you paying $50,000 for a limited edition pendant or an NFT? No way. I just, this world is not for me. And I think I spent a lot of time pulling my hair out last week while writing about this just to get a proper understanding of CryptoPunks and NFTs and everything. But one of the um, funniest parts of this story for me is that someone has suggested it's kind of come um, from Alexander Arnaud kicking back against his dad. So he owns a crypto punk, which he um, paid a lot of money for, I think, sort of over $200,000, um, which he bought two days after his father, Bernard Arnaud, who is this chief exec, uh, chairman of LVMH, came out and publicly said that he, you know, expresses concern about entering the NFT world. And then his son, a couple of days later, you know, bought his own, changed his Instagram profile to this CryptoPunk NFT. And he commissioned a necklace based on it just for himself. And that's actually how this whole kind of collection and collaboration got started. So it's just, I think it's an interesting um, picture that's been painted also on that generational shift between, you know, even at this kind of big sort of luxury group, LVMH, father and son dynamic, you know, where the father's doesn't really think it's a great idea, but you know, the son's kind of pushing for that innovation. And I just thought that was a really kind of interesting like side to the story. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know, you know, people enjoy these things. They want to spend a lot of money on them personally. It's not for me, but you know, I can see the benefit for brands getting involved. And like, you know, as Joshua was saying, there's different ways that lots of brands, especially in the watch world, who've really embraced this, sort of more so than jewellery, have kind of are using these NFTs to create sort of exclusive marketing lists. And they're using them almost like as entry to a club. And they can also be used to trace the provenance of a piece, you know, when it's sold. Um, so I, I think there's lots of interesting things around that. But yeah, personally, not for me. Um, right. I mean, it's just a question where the value is, if it's in the actual NFT or the limited edition necklace. Yeah, and Abby, as you mentioned, they did. You know, they they sold them for fifty thousand dollars each, and they made that. There was it was reported that they 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 grossed something like twelve point five twelve point five million dollars from uh, from this project. 
It's amazing. It reminds me of um, a meme. I think my favorite meme I've seen about in NFTs when they first came out of the guy lying on the psychologist's um, bed and the psychologist saying, um, these NFTs that you see, are, can you describe them to me? You know, that's they, these things that are in the air somewhere <laughs> and and, uh, and not physically tangible. But I think Tiffany's done a good job in, in, in sort of bridging that gap. So just as, um, anyway, that's just an aside. <laughs> um, before we finish um, and um, really enjoyed our discussion, maybe we can have a quick a sort of a rapid fire of what we're expecting for, what's, what, what are we looking out for at the end, um, in the next few months before the end of the year? And um, let's start with you, Joshua. Um, okay, so I hope I'm not uh, stealing what anyone else was going to say, but I think I think I'm watching. I think that diamond supply is a, is an important issue. Will will there be enough diamonds for the holidays? And you know, with the impact of what's happened with Russia, uh, and we've seen very low levels of manufacturing in India. Um, it seems like the there's a the, the the balance between supply and demand is reasonable at the moment. But as the holiday, well, firstly the the Wiley season in India, and then the the fourth quarter holiday season in the US, um, as that approaches, will uh, will will there be any supply issues? What will that mean for prices? I think that's something I'll be watching. And um, that is a big question hanging over everyone's head. I agree. Um, Rachel, how about you? For me, I think I'm I'm going to be interested just to view from perhaps a design point of view how the impact of the price of gold, which continues to be really high, is going to have actually from a design point of view. I think we've got the cost of living going up at the same time and a lot of designers now are talking about kind of going back to finding interesting ways of maybe scaling down the weight of pieces or kind of trying to hit different price points. Um, and I think that sort of ties in as well. There seems to be a bit of a resurgence in terms of customers wanting to buy those really kind of classic diamond pieces, you know, that have that longevity and last forever. And I, I just think it's going to be quite interesting to see how these sort of factors change what's being sold and what designs as we kind of sort of continue sort of through this quite difficult period. I'm looking forward to seeing what marketing comes um, comes out of the industry, um, particularly from the, the Natural Diamond Council. I know they were they were busy shooting their new campaign when I last spoke to uh, David Kelly, and that, that that I think is coming out in September. But I think the um, brands, um, like we saw with Tiffany, I think the, the high-end brands are always, um, I think there's there's something available for them. I don't know what it is to really make a, make a difference and do something, but out of the box, um, I'm always excited to see what sort of advertising and marketing comes to, comes to play in for the holiday season. Anyway, that's Mashtik. Thank you so much, Rachel. Um, it was great having you on the podcast and we look forward to uh, a return appearance quite soon and working with you in the next six months. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been brilliant. Yeah, call me back anytime. <laughs> we know where to find you. <laughs> um, and Joshua, Joshua, thanks so much for your input. And it's great to, to have you on and do a, do a team podcast after so long. Likewise, I've had a great time. Thanks, Abby, and uh, thanks, Rachel. Excellent. Well, thank you, everyone, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rathport Diamond podcast. For more discussions, news, and analysis about the diamond industry, visit us on diamonds.net, follow Rathport Group on Instagram, and follow Rathport on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes. <laughs>